Hi, I'm Allison Novak, and you're listening to Local Hire. In the next hour, we'll be talking about the film industry in southeastern North Carolina, particularly in the area's hub, Wilmington. Why did the region become a hotbed for film production two decades ago? What caused its decline in the late 90s? What are the prospects for the future of film in Wilmington? We'll talk to key industry personalities who will explain the issues and policies that affect the local film community. But the stars of our presentation are the local hires themselves, the resident actors, technicians, production staff, and others trying to make it in this business called show. And I'm a local hire. And I'm a local hire. And I'm a local hire. I'm a local hire. And I'm a local hire. I'm a local hire. The Wilmington film industry has been a regular news feature lately. A new high-tech soundstage is in the works, and One Tree Hill is signed on for another season. Meanwhile, features bound for the port city have slipped away to North Carolina's newest fiscal rival, Georgia. It's got those in the know talking about the bottom line, cash money. And if you've had your ear to the radio, you may have heard some of the following. The 15% is not really 15%. Well, it's left us a little bit uh, in limbo. Constantly looking for business. Yeah, we really need the 15%. Sooner or later, the lack of major blockbuster-type features is going to take a toll on us. Without it, film would be dead. Maybe some of that seemed familiar, but for those of you who don't follow every minute shift of the film industry in Wilmington, let's take it back a few steps. It all started with this. No, no, no. That wasn't porn music. That was the soundtrack for... Stephen King's Firestarter. So Firestarter was filmed in Wilmington in 1983, starring a young Drew Barrymore, David Keith, and a slightly older George C. Scott. The film was based on a Stephen King novel about a girl who starts fires with her mind. She can set things on fire with just a glance. The guys behind the movie were two Hollywood big shots, Frank Capper Jr. and Dino De Laurentiis. Now, Firestarter features a huge plantation, the home of a secret government research facility bent on capturing Drew Barrymore and doing a lot of unsavory tests on her. The story goes that Frank Capper Jr. found a photo of Orton Plantation on the cover of Southern Accents magazine. Of course, that didn't sell him on shooting in North Carolina. He searched dozens of other locations, but couldn't shake the image of the original. So it was Frank Capper Jr. who brought Firestarter to the area. But it was Firestarter that brought Dino De Laurentiis. Frank Capper Jr. was Hollywood royalty. His father directed classics like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life. But in Europe, Dino De Laurentiis was a household name. And in this episode, Dino's our guy. Dino had made a slew of movies in Europe, including some Fellini classics like these. Le notti di Caviria. And... And in the 70s, Dino came to the U.S. and became a high-volume producer. Dino De Laurentiis presents... The most exciting original motion picture event of all time. King Kong. Conan, the barbarian. Death Wish. Orca. Cervical. The Serpent's Egg. Before moving to the U.S., Dino built his own studio in Italy, nicknamed Dino Città, where he made B-classics like 
Barbarella. However, Dino didn't have much success with his European studio. But in Wilmington, Dino saw potential to realize his dream of a facility all his own. And I was doing a Dino Durantis movie called The Dead Zone with, um, anyway, The Dead Zone, a Stephen King picture. And when the movie was over, Dino said to me, I'm making a, I'm making a studio in Wilmington in the North Carolina. You come down with me to help to build the studio and to teach the people to make the movies for no money. That was Jack Brandis, who these days is an award-winning inventor. But back in the 80s, at the studio's start, he was a gaffer and a member of Dino's A-team. What's a gaffer, you ask? I was a lighting director, which, if you see the credits go rolling by, is the gaffer. <clears throat> I used to joke with producers that <clears throat> when they complained about what the lighting budget was going to be, I would say, you know, if you're going to do a movie and you have no lighting budget, you know what you end up with? And they would look at me kind of puzzled. I'd say, you end up with radio. Like most of the people we interviewed, Jock was slightly out of step with the rest of the world. I, when I got out of college, I went to Jamaica and I taught high school in the worst slum in West Kingston, Jamaica. And then to make matters worse, after that, I went to join the Nigerian civil war on the losing side, which was Biafra, a small spot which no longer exists. And in the process of all that, I became very politicized. I'm not going to tell your listeners just how far to the left I was, or someone will clap me in irons and cart me off to some border. But I was pretty much a major fan of the serious global underdog. And so I, I decided I was going to make either documentary films or I was going to make feature films with a heavy political content. And I decided that in order to learn how to make movies rather than going to school, I would just get a job making regular run-of-the-mill Hollywood-style movies and commercials, and I would learn the technology. And I kind of got comfortable there, and my political fanaticism sort of faded a bit, and I found myself quite contentedly doing feature films, television series, stuff like that. So in 1984, Jock found himself in the middle of a small film revolution. Dino had bought 32 acres of land near Wilmington's airport to build the De Laurentiis Entertainment Group, or DEG, studios. It was Wilmington's first studio, and it opened its doors in June of 1984. Dino's plan was to bring a few talented pros from around the world to train the locals. Dino had an idea that there were certain people who would be good at certain jobs because of their nationalities. Americans made the best stuntmen, British were the best cameramen, Italians were the best set designers, and he had this idea that Germans were the best film electricians and the best film lighting guys. And he always thought I was German. I was always on his pictures because Germans were the best, despite the fact that I speak six good words of German only when I'm drunk. And so I was always his German electrician, and everyone was looking around saying, is German? Jock. Oh, Jock, yes. Jock is a traditional old German name. Of course, it's if he had discovered that I'm actually born in Holland, and I was actually originally Dutch, I would be moved to the accounting department because the Dutch made the best accountants. Another of Dino's recruits was Chunky Hughes, a seasoned key grip from England. Uh, my name is Chunky Hughes, and I'm a key grip. And the only way I can describe what we do is um, we're bell bombsmen. We get everybody out of trouble. 
We do our jobs and we do everybody else's job as well. We rig the lights uh, and at the same time of doing that we rig all the sets. We put down all the dolly track for the camera. We rig all the cars. I started in 1958. I was 18 years old. You had to be 18 to go into the film studios. And I'm still a Greek grip after 50 years. I came back to Wilmington in 1985. And I came back here to do a movie called The Year of the Dragon. The studios were just opened. And they brought a lot of English and a lot of Italians over uh, for us to train the local people. Uh, there was no film crew here at all. We went to the shipyard had just closed. And we got painters, welders, carpenters, electricians, and took them into the studio and actually made film, actually shooting films while we were training the guys. So who were the locals? Hi, my name is Tim Pope. I'm a set decorator. Basically, we take the sets. When we get the sets, they're completely empty, and we put all the furniture in them. I really think the art of set decorating is in the shopping. Shopping is a lot of fun. It really is, especially if somebody else's money. That's what, it's the thing I like the most about what I do. I moved down here in November of 84. I worked uh, in TV news at the time. I was a technician in TV news. So I was very aware of all the news around the state. And we interviewed somebody that had already worked on Firestarter. At that point, they'd only done one movie down here, Firestarter. And Dino De Laurentiis bought the land on 23rd Street because it was open and was geared to do three movies a year. So back in September of 1984, I found out they were getting ready to shoot three movies the following December. And so I literally got my girlfriend to type up resumes and I sent resumes to all three movies in different departments. It was Cat's Eye, uh, Marie A True Story, and uh, You're the Dragon. And um, Cat's Eye actually called me up and offered me a job. And I said, sure, I'd love to do it. I, I couldn't believe it. I finally got through and he says, okay, well, be here tomorrow morning at seven o'clock. I was like, wait a second, guys. I'm, I'm four hours away, you know, and I have a real job if I'm going to lose my vacation, if I quit. They says, well, better look next time. We'll keep in touch. And I says, are you serious? You really hired people that quickly? And he says, oh, you're lucky that we gave you uh, 16 hours notice. So I sort of stuck it in and says, okay, well, that's destiny. And then three weeks later, they called me for a technician's job, and I took it. For Tim, a recent graduate and a small-town boy, the movie world was a new and overwhelming experience. So it was a very, uh, very cosmopolitan, very not a small southern town existence. The lot was full of British people, Italians, Californians, and a couple of us local southern boys. Just a couple, really. And so it was, you know, at lunch break, the British crews would go to uh, the commissary and have their stouts and they wouldn't even eat lunch they would drink and then go back to work that was a custom and it was, it was you know something you didn't see you would never see here in this country even back in the late 80s and uh, you would have people conversing to each other giving them camera directions to each other in Italian you had no idea what they were saying and for the experienced or as Tim says cosmopolitan crew 
the sleepy port of Wilmington was a culture shock as well. I remember there was a guy, his name was David Griffith, and he came on to, onto the set one day to me and he said, I'm looking for Mr. Chunky Hughes. And I said, that's me. What do you want? He went, my God, you sure do talk funny. I said, have you heard you talk? So I called him Jeffro. That was his name, Jeffro out the hills. And he kept that name all the way through the film industry, Jeffro. And uh, I was working on the set and he was just outside the set and some of his buddies from the um, carpenter shop came over to see him. And they said, how are you doing? And he said, you know, yesterday I couldn't spell the word grip. Now I are one. But the, uh, the young people like myself came in. It was like, a, you know, it was like being part of a, certainly a circus, you know, a very organized family circus. And this is Jock. Years ago, I was going to write a funny book about Dino's first year here. Because it was an amazing meeting between all these crazy foreign filmmakers who are artists and geniuses and general pains in the ass and the local redneck community who realized that these people paid a lot of money for not doing really a whole lot. And the crazy Italians who just parachuted in and the guys who just left, you know, the, the knitting mills up in, you know, in the Piedmont to come down here. The title of this never finished novel was going to be Chow Y'all. And here's one for the book. Stephen and I drove all over North Carolina in a rented Cadillac. The Stephen that Jock is so casually referring to is none other than best-selling author Stephen King. Listening to ACDC pumping off the tape deck, buying trucks because, you know, in this movie, these trucks come to life and kill people. The movie Jock is talking about is, of course, Maximum Overdrive, King's directorial debut, and Swan Song. So he saw these trucks as actors, having personalities and faces. And I'd be going in to use truck lots in North Carolina with Stephen King. The problem was he decided he wasn't going to be, he didn't want to be recognized. Now, most people don't really know exactly what he looks like. If he, if, you know, some guy who looks like Stephen King walks into a used truck lot in Warsaw, North Carolina, you're not going to think it's him. So he decided he was going to disguise himself. He wore kind of a weird suit, sunglasses, and a stingy brim hat. And when he put it on, he looked exactly like Dan Aykroyd in the Blues Brothers. I mean, exactly like that. Which suddenly meant that whenever he went anywhere, people recognized him, but they thought they were recognizing Dan Aykroyd as a blues brother. So that when he was found out and asked, people would ask for his autograph and, and Dan Aykroyd would sign Stephen King, they would say, eh, what is this? And they'd crumple it up and throw it away because they thought that Dan Aykroyd was playing a trick on, it was, it was, yeah. If this were a movie, we'd show the hero training, fumbling, and finally succeeding against the odds. However, this is the movie industry, and it doesn't work that way. At DEG, training coincided with production, and production begat production, and not necessarily good ones. What we did in the 80s weren't partic wasn't particularly profound films, but you had big actors. That's Tim Pope, our set decorator. No Mercy with Richard Gere. Who's ever heard of that? Uh, Raw deal with Arnold Schwarzenegger. They were sort of like, you know, drive-in films or, or what they would have called straight-to-DVD back then. Or straight-to-VHS because DVDs weren't around back then. A lot of thrillers, you know. But then you would have your Blue Velvet, which still lives in uh, as a classic. You know. 
quantity doesn't necessarily tend to reconcile with quality. DEG was churning out nine movies a year, a brutal pace that sometimes led to farcical situations. We were here, they were doing three movies at the same time. Dino insisted on seeing all of the stuff shot at all of the dailies, but he didn't have time, so he insisted that they be screened at high speed so he could see all of yesterday's performances from his three movies, Crimes of the Heart, whatever we're doing, you know, at high speed. Well, the idea that you're going to critique a performance by seeing it with no sound at high speed or with sound going, for the love scene, and then say, no, I think it needs more emotion, or I'm not so sure about the flowers. You know, it's enough to drive anyone crazy, but that's what uh, Dino did. It may have been fast-paced, and the films may have been artistically questionable, but Dino's production breathed life into the burgeoning industry. Let's hear from Chunky and Tim. The one thing about Dino De Laurentiis was he was a producer, it was his studio, and we were his people. You just go online and see how many movies we made here. We never stopped. There was at least five movies going all the time. There were three films going on at one time. That's how he structured it. It was like nine films a year. Three, three, and three. Three films, five films, whatever. You get the idea. And you would cross the lot and the bells would be ringing and have to be quiet trying to go from one soundstage to another. There was so much work going on. And you'd finish one on a Friday and you'd start another one prepping for the Monday. And I'm talking big movies, you know, Silver Bullet, you know, Crimes of the Heart. As soon as you were done with one film, you basically were lifted, sometimes early before the film was over, you were lifted onto another film. And uh, I mean, it was the 80s, what can you say? It was just, you know, kind of a rock and roll crazy existence. Dino made Wilmington look like anything and everything. Jock and Chunky explain. We made Wilmington look like New York. For Year of the Dragon, nobody knew. All we did was shot downtown all round. Had loads of Chinese people and changed a few signs and put a load of firecracking stuff on the ground and it was New York. We made Chinese city streets and futuristic nightmare, kind of Newark in 60 years, and it was Chinatown in New York, New Orleans at the turn of the century. I mean, we turned Airly Gardens into African jungle, you know, with the guys wading through the lake with all the trees. We tied parrots in the trees. Yes, parrots. Tied them up there, put monofilament around their foot and tied them in the trees. Well then, after the first infusion of new blood from Dino's crew in the local pool, production became insular. However, the industry in Wilmington had grown large enough to attract talent from around the world, including from the nation's film capital. All right, my name is Will Purcell, and I'm a special effects technician coordinator. Um, I do anything physical in front of camera, pyrotechnics, wind, rain, fire, and um, my great-grandfather uh, was a carpenter and helped, he was one of the carpenters that helped build MGM Studios. And my grandfather was 19 and didn't have a job. And so his dad went over and said, why don't you go over here and work for these guys? He knew some of the carpenters at the studio. And he said, go to work. So they got him a job. And his first job was painting flowers in the Munchkin Land on Wizard of Oz. You'd think he'd have film in the blood. But it turns out he got into the biz pretty haphazardly. Um... 
I got into trouble with the law, actually, and I was a rambunctious teenager, uh, you know, late 70s, early 80s with blue hair and running around Los Angeles screaming anarchy and um, ended up owing my dad about $8,000 in legal fees for everything from stealing cars to putting my fist through windows and all kinds of ridiculous stuff. And uh, yeah, <clears throat> so he knew I'd never pay him back. And uh, my dad and my grandfather both were special effects people, and I had no interest in the film industry. And I, you know, I basically went to work for my dad to pay him back every dime. Will took a shine to the film business, worked in LA for a while, and in 1988, he came to Wilmington to work on a project. My very first job here in Wilmington, um, uh, I worked on a movie called Little Monsters. I believe it was the summer of '88. And um, I liked Wilmington, and there was offer of more work. It was thriving. There was a studio here, you know. It was this sleepy little community. By the time Will moved from L.A. to Wilmington, the city had acquired the nickname Hollywood East. Ironically, DEG was in serious financial trouble. This is how Jock saw it. I mean, I remember being in a room with someone, and he was phoned by a stockbroker or a stock dealer. And the phone call he got said, hey, now's the time to, to buy Delorenta's stock, you know. It's down to a dollar, now's the time to buy. And the guy said, you know, there are numbers smaller than a dollar. The thing was, DEG had become too big for its britches. An apt example of this is the 1987 ad campaign for Million Dollar Mystery. DEG offered a million dollar prize for the filmgoer who deciphered clues from the film's plot. Sadly, the movie made less than the $1 million prize offering. DEG couldn't even cover the reward, much less the $10 million production cost. Before 1988 had run its course, DEG crumbled. In February, De Laurentiis was removed as chairman from his own company, the one that carried his very name. By August, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group had filed for bankruptcy. That same year, Carolco Pictures Incorporated purchased Wilmington's movie studio and ushered in a new era.
I'm Allison Novak. You're listening to Local Hire. Earlier, we saw the creation of DEG Studios and its demise. Now we follow the studio from its resurrection by Carol Coat Pictures up to the present incarnation of EUE Screen Gem Studios. So in 1989, Carol Coat Pictures had just purchased the 23rd Street Studio, and with new ownership came new focus and different types of projects. There was a fundamental shift in the way films were produced in Wilmington. The new owners, Carolco, merely rented out the studio facilities to other companies, unlike Dino, who produced his own films in the Wilmington studio. Carolco was basically the landlord and wasn't necessarily attached to the productions coming out of the studio. Dino was making movies nonstop, and they were, they were good movies. That's Chunky Hughes, our key grip. Carolco, when they bought it, they never bought one movie here. I worked for Corralco a lot. I never made one movie in America with Corralco. Not one. Chunky's not quite right about that. Carolco did produce one film in the Wilmington studio, a movie called Rambling Rose starring Robert Duvall and Laura Dern. It was a drama set in the 1930s whose tagline was, Innocence has never been so seductive. But for the people in the field, it felt like just another day at the office. Tim Pope, our set decorator, saw it like this. Now, the thing about the film business is as long as you're working, you really don't notice anybody else suffering, you know, as long as you have a place to go. And I was working on Matlock at the time, and, uh, you know, I was still working. I was still working. You know. I, I didn't really notice any uh, change except the fact that I was working on more TV shows rather than features. Instead of working with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michael Keaton, I was working with Judith Light. You remember Jock Brandis, our lighting technician. He also drank from the new television well. And for him, the work in TV was markedly different from his previous work in feature film. I was there for it sagging down, and then I was there when the TV series started to come. But the difference between television and big feature films is pretty enormous in terms of the depth of experience and the variety of it. If you're doing One Tree Hill, there's a real similarity between the episodes or the seasons as compared with saying, all right, this year you're going to do a Muppet movie, next year you're going to do a spy action thriller, and next year you're going to do a romantic comedy set in 1870. There's a real range, and you can really hone your skills, and you can. it's good for crews to have big challenges like that. It wasn't as glamorous as the DEG productions, but made-for-TV movies and TV series supported the industry when the bottom dropped out. For a long time, Wilmington was the TV movie of the week capital of the world, especially the mid-90s. We were strong, you know, a lot of television. This is Will Purcell, our special effects coordinator. You know, it was, it's, it, it's touch and go, but if there's five or six things going on at a time, you know, I was able to keep myself pretty busy, you know. And when I first moved here, you know, I, I probably worked from 1988 to... 1995, almost completely in Wilmington. I think I did two or two movies out of town in that time period. The rest was like television and movies and features that was coming to Wilmington. And yeah, I worked here. It was great. In fact, Wilmington's peak production year was 1995. That's six years after DEG closed its doors. Key grip Chunky Hughes explains. There was a, a little bit of a lull and then little movies started coming in. There were so many coming here and no big movies that then Wilmington got the name of being a cheap place. The million plus 
place to make a movie. Tim Pope, our set decorator. TV shows shoot about eight pages a day, and a feature shoots about a page and a half to three pages a day. So it's really in and out. And they're not as particular about the art department, for instance, what I do. So you come in, and instead of having like, oh, I don't know, guys, two months to, to get ready for the, the show, where you, you shop and you research and you make sure you get exactly the right stuff. On the TV show, you have about three weeks, and, and you just sort of just cough it out. You just you do a good job, but it's not the center of attention. The screen's smaller, so they don't pay attention to it more, so they don't give you as much money, not nearly as much money. Despite the shift in project size, Wilmington had already established a reputation outside of North Carolina, and the industry continued to attract aspiring filmmakers. Well, strangely enough, once uh, Dino... Dino meaning Dino De Laurentiis, the former head of DEG Studios. Sort of went back to California. A lot of the people who uh, were starting to have good, solid careers, they also went to California. So we lost about a third of our crew base here. Uh, Strangely enough, a lot of people entered after the 90s. They never knew the Dino De De Laurentiis. They never ever really worked on the Dino De Laurentiis movie. And uh, it became uh, more competition. And uh, the business went from being a a 10 and a half month, 11 month job to six to eight months. But then, like Dino's studio before it, Carol Co. folded. At a public auction in 1996, a California subsidiary of Sony and Columbia TriStar, EUE Screen Gems, gained control of Carol Co. for $3.4 million. These are the guys who still own the studio, by the way. That may seem like a bargain for a whole movie studio, except that hundreds of thousands of dollars in repairs needed to be made just to get the studio in working condition. We noticed that our interviewees rarely mentioned Carol Co., or even really noted its death throes, Perhaps because Carolco would have had little involvement in the production of films and had no charismatic leader like Dino De Laurentiis. In contrast to the days of Dino, work with Carolco seemed like, well, work. However, during the period that Carolco owned the studio, some of the most memorable Wilmington films were made, movies like Super Mario Brothers and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And then there's the event that garnered the most attention from the world outside Wilmington, the shooting of Brandon Lee on the set of The Crow. The Crow was a sort of goth action film produced in Wilmington in 1993. Brandon Lee, the son of martial arts legend Bruce Lee, played the lead, Eric Draven. One scene required that a gun be loaded, cocked, and then aimed at the camera. The bullets loaded had real cartridges that had been emptied of gunpowder. After the scene was finished, the props master fired the gun to uncock it. The primer provided enough force to knock an empty cartridge into the gun's barrel. On March 31, 1993, the crew was filming Lee's character's death scene. The gun with the empty cartridge still loaded in the barrel was used in the scene. It was reloaded with blanks containing a low-powered gunpowder. When Lee's character walks into his apartment, he finds his girlfriend being attacked by a group of thugs. While trying to save the girl, Lee is struck by a rain of gunfire. The still-loaded gun had enough power to expel the empty cartridge, and although the bullet was traveling at a much slower speed than a normal gunshot, it had enough force to fatally wound Lee. The shooting was ruled an accident, and the footage of his death was destroyed without ever being developed. 
In the late 90s and early aughts, production began to thin out in the area. Well, TV movies basically started going to Canada, uh, or they went to Utah. There was never any dry spots until 2001, but it's just less of it. And, and literally there were movies that were slated to come to Wilmington at the last minute they went to Canada because of the uh, incentives or exchange rate, or they went to Utah. That was a big place. CBS really fell in love with Utah. CBS used to shoot a lot of stuff here. So they became the new Wilmington. Salt Lake City, I'm specifically referring to, became the new non-union shop. Uh, I felt the same way um, that maybe a lot of L.A. people did when, when production started leaving there, when production started leaving here. That's Will, our special effects coordinator. And we lost a lot of work to Canada. We lost a lot of work also to Eastern Europe. You know, so, and, and it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, there was a lot, it was a struggle. The movie of the week industry, Wilmington's main meal ticket, was hit particularly hard. In 2001, the U.S. Department of Commerce released a study that the movie of the week production in the U.S. had decreased by 33% in only six years. Today, runaway production is the term used by the film industry to describe film production leaving the U.S. to reap the benefits of low costs outside the country. However, the term originally referred to productions leaving California for other states, like North Carolina. Given that we stole production from L.A., were there hard feelings toward Canada when the industry headed north? Oddly enough, um, uh, my dad and his partner, they were one of the first effects guys that went to Canada on one of the rogue productions. I think it was Runaway Train was the movie. It was a big rogue production that left Hollywood, and they were very upset about it. And so they were already Hollywood. The producers are the ones that did it to Hollywood. Everybody says, oh, Canada, it was your own producers, people. It wasn't just Canada, and it wasn't just the movies. When Maya Angelou wanted to film her directorial debut, Down in the Delta, she pleaded with producers to film in her home state, North Carolina. However, Showtime insisted that the movie would be shot in Ontario or not at all. You know, towards the, you know, the later 90s, when we started losing a lot of the work, it started to deplenish. And, you know, we lost a lot of crew base. A lot of people moved as well, you know. You know. It's funny, though, you also see that a lot of people that are from here, they, they move out to L.A. I'm going to go to L.A. And, you know, and you, they come back about <laughs> two years later with their tail between their legs. Because, you know what, Wilmington's a good place to be. I grew up in L.A., and I love L.A., but it's a dump, and I don't want to live there anymore, man. There's too many people, and the quality of life is way better here, man way better here. In the early 2000s, we had a perfect storm of three things that happened. That's Tim Pope, our set decorator. We had the five hurricanes, and it sort of shut down September and October. Between 1996 and 1999, there were more than 10 tropical storms and hurricanes that hit the area, accruing billions of dollars in damage. Hurricane season began to mean something very real to Hollywood producers. But there were man-made storms, too. Then there was NAFTA, which was Clinton's plan, uh, where suddenly they opened up the uh, exchange rate with Canada and free trade agreement, and a lot of films left at the last minute, which are slated to come here. Oh, NAFTA. The North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect on January 1st of 1994. However, the Canada-United States Free Trade Agreement a predecessor of NAFTA, had been in place since the end of the Reagan era. 
What actually drew production north was the attraction of quality crews and locations, a favorable currency exchange rate, and aggressive tax incentives offered by the Canadian government. All this could add up to between 25 and 50 percent reduction in production costs. And the final storm was uh, September 11, 2001. Suddenly everyone was afraid to fly. And that's when it sort of really just ground to a halt here. I was working on a film, Domestic Disturbance, with John Travolta and Vince Vaughn. And after that was over, there was nothing, probably for a year, nothing of any significance. You know. That and perhaps because during the filming of the movie, actor Vince Vaughn and writer Scott Rosenberg were arrested following a bar fight. A fight where fellow actor Steve Buscemi was stabbed repeatedly by a Wilmington local in the head, throat and arms. Since the 2001 halt, there have been good years and bad years in Wilmington. But to survive, the local crew had to adapt, and for some, that meant packing their suitcases to follow the fleeing productions. And it's like now, there's nothing here in Wilmington. That's Chunky Hughes. Do you know where all the crews are? They're in Georgia, they're in South Carolina, they're in Detroit, they're in Louisiana, they're New Mexico. All of these people that have given incentives this, built, this place built up a huge film community. So you will find that all of your grips, electric, costume designers, set makers, everything, are not working here. They're working in any other state. And it's the same with me. I go all over America. Uh, the last movie I did here, I did for free, actually. I did it for free. And this is Jock. And it, it's a pity because one of the worst parts of being a film technician is that you're a nomad and if you want to have any real social life where you have a family or something like that, it's very difficult because you're essentially always on the road somewhere else. Whereas when Dina was here, it was great because we could all sleep in our own beds and we could all could actually be married and be a father. Some people chose to cut and run altogether. I had a series of personal problems and... That left me in a situation with two small children that I couldn't just pack up and go away and do all these films. So I stepped away from the movie business as soon as I did that. Other people took my place so that when my kids were grown and out of school, I couldn't step back in. Others chose to change along with the industry. Take Will, for instance. Usually, Will works with physical effects. However, when the industry started to use computer-generated imagery, CGI, he realized he had to join the digital age or be left in the past. So he went to his own font of knowledge on the changing times, his dad. And I said, well, what are we going to do? So, so we, do I need to go, go to school? <laughs> do I, I need to go get a, do I need to learn how to turn a computer on? What do I need to do? And, um, he says, no, he says, embrace it. He says, you know what, they're always going to need something. And, and really, they do. Whenever we shoot in front of green screen, there's usually effects there because we're either, A, hanging somebody from a harness in front of it, or we're blowing wind on them, or we're doing something. You know, I've dressed in a green leotard with a green hood on and green gloves and puppeted things in front of a green screen. So, yeah. So, he embrace it. So, that's what I do. I embrace it. We asked Will if we could get a photo of him and said green leotard for the website. You know, I'd be lucky if I could get it around my leg now, but it was a long time ago. 
Yeah, it's 35 bucks an hour for that magic dance, baby. <laughs> but all that adaptation and change can get old. Well, I mean, I can, I'll travel anywhere to work, but, you know, the thing is, is I, I'd, I'd much rather, you know, work at home. You can only do that so much, you know, unless you're single. You know, I mean, I have a, I have a wife and, you know, I have a life. It was okay when I was young and I was 20 and, you know, like I said, I had blue hair, man. I live out of suitcase. I didn't care, man, but, you know, I'm 44 years old now, so, you know, you know my own bed is nice. I mean, I'm cursed, though. I mean, once you get the bug and, and, and you do this for a living, you can never go back and work a real job. I, can never, I could never go back and work a nine-to-five job. I would shoot myself in the face. I'd be so bored. You know, um, you get accustomed to living like a gypsy. So, yeah. And some have second thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I've said to many people, I might as well say it here, I, I don't think I would have maybe gotten into the film business had it been this slow as it was then. That's Tim. Basically, it's been hard to, to I felt like it's been hard to get a job, um, to break in in this town after 2000, once things started going slower, and most people are in this, I'm talking about Wilmington now, most people in this town have to go out of town to survive. Oh, everybody would love to work where they live. Uh, the only thing is, you know, it's, it's feast or famine. You're either working or you're not. And I've adapted to the new system. I'm not saying I like it, but I've adapted to it. Chunky has lived in Wilmington for over 20 years and made more than 150 films. However, only a handful have been local. I could tell by here, I could do um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine movies. Wow. Even though I've worked here and I've lived here, I've only done nine movies here in all that time. And most of them I did with, with Dino. We asked all of our interviewees two final questions. First, we wanted to know what's wrong with the film industry in Wilmington. What's wrong with filming women's? Oh, I wish I knew. I wish I really wish I knew. Um, what is wrong? Well, I think what would make the film industry what's good and bad about it, say it again now. Which left everyone more or less stumped. But the problem comes down to a few common things. It's not working because the studio doesn't produce its own material. Screen Jams produces a lot of stuff, but they never do any of it here. They produce a lot of commercials in New York, but they never send them down here. Well, the incentives could be improved. We still lose a lot of jobs to other states. You know, you would think that with all these people here, you know, we'd just be back-to-back kids. It's hard to compete, you know, when somebody's given, you know, anywhere from 20 to 25 percent, you know back on a rebate, um, you know, people are going to move to Atlanta. Woo-woo. There's really nothing wrong with the studio system, with, with the film business in Wilmington, and something's wrong with the film businesses all in America because they forced everyone to be a gypsy. You're like a carny. You're just basically a, a carny with some sort of a 401k program. Maybe the most candid answer came from Chunky. Um, I really 
If I could wave a magic wand, I would, but I, I, I don't really have an answer. Um, I really don't know what it is. Finally, we asked our guests, what's right with Wilmington Film? Here's what they said. What's right about the business is it brought a remarkable group of incredibly creative and talented people from all over the world and gave Wilmington quite a flavor which is different from, from Raleigh or Asheville or Greensboro or whatnot. It's a wonderful life. I've been educated by the film industry. I've been taken all over the world for nothing. Didn't spend a penny. So I would never ever complain about the film industry. I might complain about some of the people in it, but not the film industry as a whole. Everyone should do it for a while, and then everyone should just have a, you know, a safety net. So, at the end of the show, maybe it's worth the struggle. I am a worker. I've been a very fortunate worker. But I'm a worker nonetheless. Except I've worked in a very glamorous place. And it's not all champagne and Rolls Royces, I'll promise you that. It's full pickups and Budweiser. That's what it is. been listening to Local Hire, hosted by me, Allison Novak. This show was produced and researched by Mario Ferloni and Bailey R. Smith. Production assistance was provided by Catherine Welch. Our thanks go out to Jock Brandis, Will Purcell, Chunky Hughes, Tim Pope, Josh Sani, Zach Simcoe, Dane Peterson, and Josh Jones. Music by Poddington Bear. Local Hire is a production of WHQR 91.3 FM, Wilmington.
Let me kiss your love a little 